Do you dream? Do you remember your dreams? I understand that everybody dreams. I also understand that not everybody remembers their dreams. Um, sometimes I have very vivid dreams, um, perhaps just before I wake up, and I wake up thinking about them. But I often also find that later in the day I can't remember a single thing about that dream, even though I remember that I dreamed. But sometimes I can remember one or two things about my dreams, and sometimes I find that there is no easy way to explain to others what happened in my dreams, because my dreams actually seem to have a freaky logic all of their own. In my dreams, it is sometimes now, and I'm 52 years of age,、uh, but also many years ago at the same time. So that, for example, in some of my dreams, I'm married to Joe and living at home with mum and dad and my unmarried brothers and sisters at the same time. In some of my dreams, I'm working as a pastor and a student in a school at the same time. Perhaps、uh, in year ten at high school, but also at the same time, the school's middle-aged chaplain, and hoping that no one will notice. It's weird. And、uh, sometimes in my dreams, I'm in some kind of social or church context, surrounded by people, and everything's good except that there's a nagging, niggling worry somewhere in the back of my mind—a vague feeling that something's wrong, and I can't put my finger on what it is that is wrong. And then I wake up sweating with fear and embarrassment because I suddenly realise what's wrong, and that is that I've got no clothes on. And that's going to be difficult to explain to the bishops and to the police. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I feel much better now. <laughs> Please send the invoice for this consultation at your convenience. I guess my my point is this:、uh, dreams have an internal logic all of their own. They might might make no sense from one point of view, yet and nevertheless, dreams are always. About something, and nudity, which I understand is a very common feature of dreams. Nudity usually is about feelings of vulnerability and fear of rejection. Well, last week I explained a little bit about apocalypse、uh, as a formal writing style. It was popular from about 400 BC to about 200 AD, a 600-year period, and I explained last week how it was. A literary genre, a particular style or type of writing, one that employs symbols in a special way. And one of the reasons for the flourishing of this particular form of communication was that it was encrypted, it was code, and it was intentionally difficult for anyone to understand who didn't know how to break the code. Apocalypse uses symbols. Taken from some shared cultural or literary history, in order that things can be said without outsiders knowing what is being said.、Um, in today's text,、uh, Revelation chapter one, which you may like to keep open if you want to follow along, today's text we enter into the first of John's visions, and it is from the perspective of somebody unfamiliar with all of this. It is spooky and weird and frightening. A sword sticking out of his mouth, eyes flaming like fire, 
It's weird. It's not only weird, it's a little bit incoherent. Was the voice like a trumpet or was it like a waterfall? Because they're different. And what happens to those seven stars in his right hand when he put his right hand on the shoulder of John? Did they fall on the floor? I don't know. If, however, we know our Bibles, that is to say our shared literary and cultural history, it's actually quite simple to interpret this. But before we get there, John sets the scene for us in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, for, the, for the third time, our author, John, tells us that it is him who is writing this letter. And last week I spoke on the significance of that. And uh, when I spoke last week, I, I tried to emphasize why John would suddenly tell us clearly who he is when in his other four New Testament documents he's always very discreet about his identity. Why suddenly now tell us three times that it's John? Well, my point was he's not like us. He is an apostle. He is speaking here. He is writing here with apostolic authority. Uh, these words are enormously authoritative and important. He was one of the 12. And John occupies, therefore, a specific office, the office of apostle. An office that is not open today, at least not in the same way, or rather the office of apostle is occupied by the New Testament, by the Bible, the authority of God, the Word of God. John is not like us, we need to understand. But now, the third time John uses his own name, actually he emphasizes that he is just like us. He is one of us, the same as us. He is our brother in the Lord, our close accompanying friend in the suffering, in the kingdom, and in the long-suffering endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. And as Christians, of course, we'd love to focus all day on being companions in the kingdom that is ours in Christ Jesus, on the kingdom, that's great, because we know that Jesus has given us his power and authority. We know that we are to do what he did, and that in overcoming the obstacles in our way, as we answer his call on our collective lives, we'll see him at work in answered prayer, in miracles of coincidence, of provision, of protection, and of healing. Jesus has given us the kingdom. We'd love to focus on that all day. But, of course, this is sandwiched between two other gifts that are also ours in Christ Jesus, the suffering, traditionally translated tribulations or trials, the suffering, and the patient endurance that's equally ours in Christ Jesus. And this is also something we looked at last week. Um, if, 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 begging your pardon if I, if I quote myself just from last week's message, quote, wherever we might suffer unjustly, whenever we might experience unjustly overpowering evil, 
um, perhaps the blind hatred of somebody who irrationally hates us, or the diagnosis of a serious illness, or the rejection of our views and opinions by those around us, or whenever we experience corruption or exclusion at home or in the workplace, or hardship or persecution or deprivation or sickness because of Christ's call on our lives, whatever it may be, whenever we unjustly experience overpowering evil, that's when we know exactly what God is up to, because that's how God changes the world. Not by overpowering, but rather by suffering unjustly and sacrificially for his enemies. And in doing so, calling together a fearless people who fear only him to do exactly the same and to follow in his footsteps. Unquote. The cross is our way of life. It is our call. It is our reflex. The cross. And John knows all about that. As an apostle, as a leader, he's not above that. He's not immune to that. He's not, he, he's not saved from that. Um, rather, as a leader, he is to be an example of that. John, for example, is not where he wants to be, which is at home, which is in Ephesus where he is a pastor and an elder of the church. Rather, he is on a small and probably fairly desolate island, experiencing great deprivation, the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles southwest of the city of Ephesus. And he's there almost certainly as a prisoner, a prisoner of the Roman authorities. And that's because he is a Christian, and Christians are being persecuted. This is under the Emperor Domitian, and uh, um, the province of Asia is a hotbed of emperor worship, and Christian uh, persecution was first and worst there uh, in Western Turkey, as it would be today. And the Roman persecution is uh, getting uh, all fired up, and they're beginning with the leaders. Verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, just to think about some of the phrases there, on the Lord's Day. Um, this is actually the first recorded use of that phrase in history. It means Sunday, as opposed to Saturday, which is the Sabbath. Uh, from the earliest times, Christians of both Jewish and Gentile background came together to worship on the morning of the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the Lord's Day. In the Spirit. That phrase, well, it's used four times in Revelation, and it comes to mean under the unusually powerful influence of the Holy Spirit. John is worshipping on a Sunday and with his attention focused on Jesus and in prayer, he is particularly aware of the Spirit's presence. I heard behind me. This begins a theme in the book of Revelation, one of hearing first, seeing second. Sometimes what's heard and what's seen are at odds. For example, in chapter 5, John hears 
about the Lion of Judah who has triumphed, who is victorious, but he sees a lamb looking as if it has been slain. One truth presented in two very different ways. On this occasion, John hears his commission. He has a mission to write a letter which will include both what he sees and hears. So that's what he's heard. Now starts the vision, verses 12 and following. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Um, this scene is mysterious to the uninitiated, but to Jewish people, or indeed to anybody who knows their Old Testament, this is a vision of a priest in the temple. The lamps, the robe, the, the, the sash, this is all priestly stuff. In the temple or the tabernacle outside of the Holy of Holies was a place called the Tent of Meeting. It contained a table on which was placed the bread of the presence. And next to the table was a golden seven-lamp lampstand. One lampstand holding seven olive oil-fed lamps, each in the shape of an almond flower. Lamps that were to be continually tended by the priests. Leviticus 24 says... Outside the, curtain of the temp sorry, outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. And Aaron and his sons were to wear robes that reached to the ground and sashes or linen belts across their waists, or middles. And the Old Testament is rich with imagery with respect to robes and sashes. Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple, the hem of his robe filling the temple, an image of the authority of God. Isaiah 11.5, speaking of the Messiah to come, Isaiah says, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Uh, white representing purity, gold representing power, authority, kingship. But who is this priest? Is it Aaron? Well, uh, we find out that firstly, he is one like a son of man. The phrase son of man simply means human being. But by the far end of the Bible, by, by revelation, this phrase has become rich in meaning. Jesus' most common way of referring to himself was as the Son of Man, inviting us to consider him the human being who shows us what it means to be a human being, inviting us to consider him the human being ordained by God to rule over all other human beings, 
the Son of Man. John says he's like a son of man. I don't think that means similar to human but not human, so much as it means a human being but not simply a human being. And using images and symbols, John has a lot to tell us about this son of man. Hair, white as snow, white as wool. Well, that's exactly the words that Daniel used to describe God in his vision, calling him the ancient of days. Flaming eyes, legs gleaming like burnished bronze, glowing bronze, this mysterious non-human voice, like a trumpet, like a torrential flood. Well, in both Daniel chapter 10 and in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel in his book, they have almost identical encounters with God, seeing him as a son of man and describing him exactly this way. He, he's, he's on fire. Uh, his face is shines with the brilliance of the sun. He is holy and the source of holiness. He is powerful, the source of all power. He is living, the source of life. Fire, the source of energy. And his mouth is like a sharp, double-edged sword. Isaiah describes the Messiah in these terms. Chapter 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And elsewhere, such as Hebrews 4, the word of God the word of God is, um, analogically, it's a sharp, double-edged sword, able, able, to, able to cut us in two, able, able to peel back the layers, able to divide soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the human heart. The word of God. So this, then, is the man, the son of man, a human, yet also fully God. High priest, yet also Messiah and King. God and the word of God. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as, as though dead. Verse 17, just as Daniel and Ezekiel both did in the presence of God, in the presence of one like a son of man. And just as the temple guards did on the night that they came to arrest Jesus of Nazareth in the olive grove. Jesus saw the guards coming and, and he said to them, who is it that you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Jesus said, I am at which point they drew back and fell to the ground. I am Yahweh, the personal name of God. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do not be afraid. That's actually one of God's catchphrases from the Old Testament. Do not be afraid. That's one of Jesus' catchphrases from the Gospels. Do not be afraid. That's, they are God's words to those who find themselves in his unbearably, unsurvivably holy presence and yet will not perish. They are going to be okay, more than okay, more than survive. They're going to thrive because now they've got a mission from God. They're being commissioned. Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and last. That's what God Almighty has already said. Same chapter of Revelation, verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Like saying, I am the A to Z, or the A to Z, as you might say in America. Uh, the first and the last and everything in between. Isaiah 48. Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. By my own hand, the foundations of the earth were laid, and by my right hand, I spread out the heavens. I am the living one, Jesus says. Well, that's how God identifies himself routinely in the Old Testament, the living one, definitively the source of all life. I was dead, and look, I am alive. This is Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right-hand side of the Father, to whom was given all authority in heaven and earth, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Um, Hades is a Greek word, and it's a Greek idea. Sheol was the Hebrew equivalent we, we might understand this as a reference to hell, but that's not quite right. Um, this is not um, hell, the place of eternal torment. Um, this is Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead, the place where all dead people went to sleep, to rot, to drift and to decay endlessly in a disembodied state, self-conscious yet without substance, utterly powerless. To be dead was to be eternally disconnected from God, who is the living one, the God of the living, not of the dead. Uh, to be dead was to be finally and eternally cut off from God and therefore also from love and life and friendship and warmth and light and from any possibility of healing and from uh, exercising any authority or ever being able to make any changes. All of that over but Jesus says, I have the keys. I was dead, now I live, and I live forever. I have the keys. Or as we might say, I've changed the passwords and only I know them. Imagine that um, uh, the FBI arrests one of our many computer geniuses here at St. Barnabas and puts him or her in Alcatraz. On the third day, the doors fly open. He's or she has hacked the system. Now interviewing the superintendent of the prison, he says, we can't do a damn thing now. He's changed the passwords and we're all locked out. Lights go on, lights go off. He's in control, not us. Windows open, windows closed. There's nothing we can do about it. No door he opens can be closed. No door he closes can be opened. He's got the damned passwords. Passwords. Jesus is the victor. The victory over death and Hades, over sin, sickness, decay and distress has been won. The victory of God in the book of Revelation is not a future possibility. It is a past fact. It is a, 
uh, it is a, a, a reality in the past, the victory of God. How did Jesus get to be victor over all this nasty stuff? Well, actually, as it happens, not by overpowering it, not by avoiding it, not by going around it, but by going through it, by experiencing it, by taking it on, and whilst doing so, trusting God and God only to save him. I was dead, and behold, see, understand, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Um, most of the time, uh, God saves us uh, from suffering, uh, and he saves us from our fears. If there's something that you're feeling anxious about or worried about, we can pray about that in the expectation that most of the time, God will save you from what you're frightened of. Um, most of the time, he saves us from suffering and from our fears. But occasionally, God saves us through suffering. We can't go around. We can't go over or under. We have to go through. But either way, when we put our faith in Jesus, we have the victory. Uh, there, there is a, uh, another, speaking of catchphrase, there is another phrase that you hear routinely in the world, and I really hate it, and that phrase is, oh, so-and-so has lost their battle with cancer, or lost their battle with mental illness, or lost their battle with motor neurone disease, or whatever it might be. Um, but actually, the truth is that for us as Christians, no Christian has ever lost their battle with cancer. It's never happened. It will never happen as long as we keep trusting Jesus. For on that day, for example, for when uh, the cancer does, uh, Lord forbid, for when that cancer kills that body, on that day, at that moment, we are healed and completely free of cancer forever and ever, living and in the presence of the living one. But as for the cancer, at that same moment, the cancer says to itself, oh dear, maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. Uh, this has backfired on us. Because on that day, the cancer in trying to take over, in refusing to listen to the physiological cues, in making its grab for eternal life, on that day, the cancer dies. Not able to follow where the victor has gone. As Paul says, no, in all of these things, we are super conquerors through, 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 through him who loved us. As long as we keep trusting Jesus, there isn't a battle we can lose. Jesus is the victor, and so are we too as we walk with him, act like him, and trust in him. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place soon. Uh, sorry, what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
um, to, to just in, in, in bringing this to an end, in concluding, just two small things for us to ponder as we continue to praise and worship um, Jesus, as we conti conti continue to, to, to look at him and glory him. Um, Jesus who is with us, the Son of God. Two things. Firstly, the stars are in his right hand. Secondly, he moves among the lampstands. In the Old Testament, the right hand symbolizes strength. My, my apologies to any beloved left-handed people who happen to be present, but the right hand symbolizes strength. We've already read, by my right hand I spread out the heavens. Um, Benjamin, son of my right hand, son of my strength. Psalm 137, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I ever forget you, O Jerusalem, if I do not remember you and consider you my highest joy. We, the church, are in the palm of his hand. Which hand? His right hand. And he moves among the lampstands. Um, oil lamps require continuous tending. They are hard work, and they punish you severely if you don't constantly attend to them. Wick length, oil depth, things can catch fire, the lamp can go out. Um, it requires attention and diligence, and it is mundane, boring work. Um, uh, in the temple, it was Aaron's job, Aaron and his sons. In the household, it was the job of young women. And that was because universally we've discovered that young women are very responsible when it comes to boring, repetitive work. Jobs that go beep, 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 or jobs that go, which, connection, which extension please, putting you through, which extension please, putting you through. On the other hand, young men are almost universally irresponsible when it comes to boring, repetitive work. Uh, at the 8.30 service, after the service, somebody says, so are you telling me that Jesus is in heaven doing a girl's job? To which I replied, yes, if you want to think about it that way. Jesus is tending the lamps, and the lamps are the church. It's dull, repetitive, boring work, but he does it lovingly, intimately, caringly. He is looking after you and me. So in preparing ourselves for what Jesus has for his church, as we examine the letters in the weeks to come, we take a moment to understand he is with us. He loves us. Uh, his right hand rests lovingly upon us. We rest securely in his right hand. Uh, in the hands of him who holds the keys, who is the victor. He has the passwords. He knows us and he tends us intimately and continually. To God be the glory now and forever. Amen.